Good evening, everyone, and welcome um, to this Sydney Ideas event, Is Too Much Testing and Treatment Making Us Sick? We're really thrilled to see so many of you here today. Um, thank you for coming and taking the time. I'm Kirsten McCaffrey. I'm a professor of health psychology from the Sydney School of Public Health here at the University of Sydney. Um, and before we start, there are a couple of updates I'd like to give. First, there's a quite annoying beep from the door <laughs> over on your right-hand side. So if you find that disturbing, please move over to the right. It's slightly less noisy and slightly less annoying over here. We've tried to get it fixed, but we can't do it in time for this evening. So do feel free to move if you need to. Um, secondly, and more importantly, Professor Alex Barrett, who was due to be presenting and and hosting this event is unable to attend, unfortunately, due to a serious family medical emergency. Um, so we will miss her enormously, not only because she's an outstanding colleague and friend to many of us here, but also she has led this research collaboration and this major new grant that you're going to hear a bit more about uh, later on. But she has also carried out much of the world's leading research on this topic. And it's due to her thoughtfulness, her wisdom, her persistence, and actually her bravery to pursue this topic, which until only recently was extremely unpopular. So Alex, we miss you and we, we wish you well. Um, but of course the show will go on and we've got a very interesting program for you tonight. And I would first like to welcome um, Professor Duncan Iverson, who's the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research at the University of Sydney, to open the evening's procedure, um, proceedings, and we're honoured to have you here, Duncan, so please, thank you. Thanks very much, and good evening, everyone. It's wonderful to, to be here uh, and to welcome you to the University of Sydney campus. Let me begin, though, by saying that uh, we meet tonight on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. This is part of their traditional lands, one of the major First Nations in the Sydney Basin. Uh, Victoria Park right next to us was a traditional meeting place where knowledge ceremonies and political ceremonies were held, so it's a very appropriate, I think, uh, location for a university. We're 160 years old, but this has been a place of learning for more than 50,000 years, so I want to acknowledge uh, the Gadigal people and, and, and elders, both past and present, before uh, we begin tonight. Welcome to all of those who have come to the campus for the first time. It's wonderful to have you here, and for, I think, this really uh, quite uh, wonderful and uh, important uh, event, um, which is really to celebrate uh, the launch of the NHMRC Center of Research Excellence, creating sustainable healthcare, ensuring new diagnostics avoid harms, improve outcomes, and direct resources wisely. Now, some of you might know that the university has just launched a new, uh, strategy, new strategy, which we're very excited about. Uh, and one of, one of the key, at least two of the key themes of that strategy are excellence and engagement. And the other thing we've been doing is talking about the culture in the university. And one of the key values that we talk about uh, as part of our cultural commitment as an institution is creativity and courage. And I think all of those things are in play tonight. Because when we think about the extraordinary challenges of testing in a world in which technology is racing ahead of so much of our regulatory and arguably ethical frameworks, it's a very brave thing to press pause and ask hard questions about our health professions and our health practices in relation to overdiagnostic and overdiagnostics and 
are we testing too much, and what, do we, what new frameworks do we need to think about these issues. So I was really delighted uh, to be invited to be part of tonight's uh, launch and to be part uh, and to learn more about uh, the research agenda of this uh, group of uh, highly uh, esteemed colleagues. It's a very important and, uh, as I said, courageous uh, uh, research area, and the university's delighted uh, to share and, and support uh, in the success uh, of this group. So what my first duty is, is, is really to introduce uh, one of our, our key guest uh, speakers and obviously a, a key uh, a chief investigator as part of the research group, and that is Professor Jenny Deust. And Jenny is Professor of Clinical Epidemiology in the Center for Research in Evidence-Based Practice in Bonn University and a practicing GP. So I was just saying this is something that she probably encounters and deals with every day in her clinical life, uh, having worked in clinical practice for over 25 years. And as I said, she's a core member of the Wiser Healthcare Collaboration. So without further ado, I'd like to invite Jenny uh, to the podium. Jenny. Okay, so just check that everybody can hear me okay. I've got quite a soft voice, so if everybody, if that's okay. All right, so um, I just want to reiterate Kirsten's comment that we really miss Alex being here, and particularly given how much she's inspired the rest of the team and really been a trailblazer in this whole area. And I'll be referring to some of her work as I go through the talk this evening. So what I want to do now is give a very brief outline of what overdiagnosis is, because for a lot of people it's not necessarily intuitive or an easy concept to grasp about what overdiagnosis actually means. Um, many of the people in the audience will be quite familiar with the concept, but for those of you who haven't actually thought about this before, I'm going to give a very brief introduction. And to be honest, this is actually trying to condense what I've been trying to think about for maybe the last 15 or 20 years. So I'm going to try and condense that experience down to about 10 minutes for you. Now, this started for me when I was looking at a diagnostic test for heart failure. And this was part of um, the previous program grant that was held between Sydney University and Bond University where we were looking at screening and test evaluations. And I was particularly interested in diagnostic tests used in heart failure. And what you generally do when you're looking at a diagnostic test is you compare the accuracy of the diagnostic test against the best diagnostic test you have available, which is usually called a gold standard or a reference standard test. And when I was looking at these diagnostic tests, what I realised was that every few years, the reference standard would be changing. So that's not necessarily a problem. That's, you know, advances in science. We might make changes to what we understand about the disease. But then I started looking at other areas of medicine and realised that in those areas, the diagnostic tests were also being compared with these constantly changing reference standards. And I think the moment when I realised that this was starting to be a problem was when I realised that it wasn't because these reference standards were necessarily improving in terms of how they discriminate between people who are sick and people who are well. 
often what was happening was that these reference tests were being widened and what was happening was that a greater proportion of the population was being classified as being sick with each of these diseases. So that was the sort of pattern that we observed. So we actually got to test this in a study that we did a few years ago where we looked at guidelines. So the most common way these reference standards get changed is that when people write a new guideline, they discuss what the most recent reference standard should be for a disease. So what we did was we looked at a set of guidelines, um, we selected them based on how important those diseases were, and out of the 16 guidelines that we looked at, one had narrowed the disease definition because it had previously um, widened it considerably and there'd been quite a lot of criticism of that widening. Five, it was actually quite unclear whether it was going to widen or narrow the disease definition. But in 10 of the diseases, so the majority of the diseases, there was a widening of the disease definition and none of them had actually considered whether there might be harms from these widening of disease definitions. So that's problem number one. The second problem that I came to realise is that when we talk about screening tests, often what we were thinking about in terms of harms is the false positives of screening tests. So this is where people are labelled as having a disease with the screening test and then they go on and have further testing and they realise that that's not actually the disease that they have and so they are reassured that they don't have the test that, uh, the disease that you're looking for. When I started looking at some of these screening tests, however, that's when I came across the work that Alex Barrett was doing and others, that in fact, a large part of the harms of screening tests are not the false positive test results, it's actually the problem of overdiagnosis. And the problem here is that we are now diagnosing smaller and smaller amounts of disease, our ability to look for disease is improving, and the frequency that we are using these tests is increasing. So I think the clearest example of this is what's happened in Korea in the last two decades. So this is um, what's happened to the incidence of thyroid cancer over the last uh, two decades. In the late 1990s, Korea started a program of screening for thyroid cancer. And since that program commenced, the incidence of thyroid cancer has increased 15-fold. Now, almost all of that increase is in these papillary thyroid cancers, which are probably the least likely to metastasize or cause any problems to the patients. And the other issue here is that there has been no reduction in thyroid cancer mortality. So we can't tell at an individual level whether any of these people have been overdiagnosed or have benefited from screening, but we can see that there must have been a problem here in terms of we are now detecting a whole lot of cancers that would never have come to light otherwise. We see a similar pattern in Australia. It's not quite as pronounced because we don't have actual screening, 
but the incidence of thyroid cancer in Australia has also gone up about threefold in the last two decades. So the problem here is not that we've widened our disease definition. The problem here is, in fact, we're using an old definition of disease. So this is from Otis Brawley, who is the chief medical and scientific officer of the American Cancer Society. He said, we need to dump the 19th century definition of cancer. And the problem is because we have all of these sophisticated tests that are now able to detect very small amounts of cancer. So to give you an idea of um, one of the problems we have, this is the slide on your left is an example of an old mammogram that's picking up a calcification that's two centimetres uh, wide. We can now detect calcifications that are 0.02 centimetres in diameter. So that's 0.2 of a millimetre. And those calcifications will be biopsied and potentially the patient will be diagnosed with breast cancer. So we now have these twin problems of widening of disease definitions and over-detection both through more sophisticated testing and more frequently looking for disease. And sitting in the middle of that is the poor doctor and patient who are trying to make sense of these tests and trying to navigate their way through the healthcare system. Now, there's a whole lot of consequences that are arising from these um, overdiagnosis and increasing classification of people who are sick. This is one. So this is written, a cartoon done by somebody that um, I think quite a few people in the audience might know, Hilda, from her time when she was the head of the Consumer Health Forum in Australia. So the cartoon is, I'm obliged to inform you, you have the right to remain anxious. Anything you say will be used to further test you. If you do not already have a diagnosis, one will be provided for you. And what is happening is our pool of people who are considered normal and who have no disease is getting smaller and smaller till eventually we're ending up with a tiny puddle. This is another example of the type of problem that we're creating, and this is from a talk that Iona gave last week in Queensland, and I think it really illustrates what the problem is between what we've created and what the reality of um, the risks and the benefits of treatment might be. So if we start here in the top right-hand, this is... When they asked women, a thousand women who were of the age group that would be eligible for screening, how many they believed would die from breast cancer, the average that uh, the um, number that people thought on average that women would die from breast cancer was 160. Now the truth is, in that age group, five women would die from breast cancer. So there's a huge difference between the number of people who are perceived to be at risk of breast cancer and the number of women who actually are. 
Then when they asked what they believed the benefit from screening would be, they thought that it would be reduced by half so that 80 women would die from breast cancer. Now, the truth of that is probably more like about a 20% reduction in breast cancer mortality. So if you look at the independent review of breast cancer screening from the Marmot Report in the UK, they estimated approximately a 20% reduction in deaths. So the true um, benefit is that you go from five women dying with breast cancer to four women dying from breast cancer. And then the area that's quite contested still is exactly how many women would be diagnosed with breast cancer that would never otherwise have been diagnosed um, due to the screening program. But it's probably roughly about three women. So we have these twin problems of widening of disease definitions, increasing detection of disease, and that's leading on to all sorts of problems with patients about increasing anxiety, what, needing more tests, needing more reassurance. So this is our uh, chief investigator team and our associate investigator team that's going to be working on the problem for the next five years. So I won't go through all of them, but just to point out some of the people who are involved, people like Barry Kramer from the National Cancer Institute in Washington, John Brodison from the University of Copenhagen, Juan Brito from the Mayo Clinic, who's um, very involved with the thyroid cancer problem. So this is a problem that has been uh, clearly a worldwide problem. There are a number of people in this room as well that are also working on the problem. And there are a number of people working on the problem in a, in a variety of institutions overseas, many of whom we're linked up with as well. So to give you a little bit more of the international perspective, we'll show you a, a video from the Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference that was held in Oxford in 2014. ...implications of healthcare in a different way to that which I'm used to hearing from... meeting last year in Dartmouth which was the first of these conferences and it was a very extraordinary meeting there was a sense of fragmented people working on their own a sense of not quite sure who else was doing what different specialties different disciplines and that meeting really gave people a sense there were lots of people worried about the harms of too much medicine and I think this meeting is an opportunity to build on that there are 400 people here but lots of different areas we've got consumers We've actually got patient representatives, GPs, specialists, all talking to each other. I think, um, as with anything, uh, medicine has had a, a pendulum swing, and most of the history of medicine has about 
been about developing how to do things to help people and how to do them better, how to give more treatments, how to do more investigations. But as with any pendulum, you reach the end of the swing and it has to come back to find some sort of balance. So I think this conference or this series of conferences um, represents a real turning point. And when it comes back to a balance, that's when we'll really be achieving um, truly good medical care. Well, in my context and, and also from orthopedic surgery, uh, one of the big dilemmas is working with uh, magnetic resonance imaging and x-rays where we face several challenges because we get so detailed information and we don't really know what is, um, what is normal and what is pathologic. I think that uh, the overdiagnosis is an issue for every GP around the world, uh, including uh, myself in Brazil. Uh, and I came here because uh, we, are, we are not uh, discussing this, this issue in Brazil already as much as here. So I'm trying to, to learn a little bit about it and, and go back home with new ideas. That actually that was when I became a geneticist because I, I was fascinated by this wonderful simplicity. But better still, my biology teacher stepped into the seat beside me on the way back to school and said, can you explain that to me once more? And that was the first time. Well, I was here to talk about genetics and genomics and how genetic testing might cause overdiagnosis. And as I actually started by saying, you've, you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, once you can actually start whole genome sequencing, the danger of making everyone worried by their genes is, is almost unlimited. Okay, so if I can invite the panel to come up to the um, front here. Well, I think if we uh, take a historical perspective, um, when I started in general practice 40 years ago, I'm sorry to say, um, we, we were seeing patients who were experiencing symptoms. People came to the doctor because they felt ill. When I finished in general practice about five years ago, a huge proportion of the people we were seeing were perfectly well, but had the wrong numbers on their blood tests. 
So we have begun to define disease on the basis of numbers, not on the basis of suffering. And that is a huge change for medicine, which has a primary moral commitment to care for people who are suffering. And it's very hard to know what to do with numbers. And people have become more and more frightened by their numbers. And we don't know the extent to which we are actually making people ill by making them worry about abnormal results to test or so-called abnormal results to tests, which, if they didn't know about them, would have done them no harm at all. Absolutely. So as a psychologist, I've been looking at the psychological and social impact of, of over-testing and over-treatment. I've particularly looked at the area of cancer, and I'm sure I don't need to tell people in the audience that a diagnosis of cancer is a profoundly life-altering experience. And if it's unnecessary, then that's something we really need to take seriously. Um, in, we've done lots of interview studies and studies where we've measured the quality of life impact on people who've had a diagnosis and it will be no surprise to you it leads to enormous fear, anxiety, leads people to make enormous changes in their life, marriages to break up, people to leave work um, and not only does it impact the individual who's diagnosed but of course it impacts their partner enormously and it has an enormous impact on their children too, who then become also at risk of, um, of cancer in the future and leads them to feel anxious and desire more tests, more monitoring. So the circle of anxiety and impact gets bigger and bigger. Um, so it, it has an enormous impact. <coughs> Okay, is that better now? Yes, thank you. Okay, one of the interesting things that was in that video was that um, Dee Mangan was talking about the pendulum swinging too far in one direction and that we're now having too much testing and treatment. So, Stacey, what do you think citizens expect from medicine now? It's a big question. Um, and I think it's important not to overgeneralise, right? I mean, different of us probably expect different things. Um, from medicine. But we know expectations are important. So um, a wonderful student of mine who I think is here tonight, Kristen Pickles, is working with general practitioners um, to understand why GPs provide PSA tests the way that they do. And one of the things, one of the many, many things that has proven explanatory in that relationship is that GPs sometimes are responding to what men expect them to do. So men come into the clinic and they want a test and it's very difficult for GPs who want to continue a sustained relationship with that man to say no if the man really wants the test. And it's much more complex than that, but that's one of the things that's important. But I think maybe a more important question than what do we expect is why do we expect what we expect? Where do those expectations come from and should they necessarily always be satisfied? Should we always get what we, ex what we expect to get from medicine? Um, and I think there's some good reasons to think that maybe we shouldn't always get what we expect. So there's, um, this, this seems a bit, uh, it seems a little bit, um, what's the word? It seems like I shouldn't say such a thing, right? Because uh, you know, consumer advocacy and we're, we're all supposed to stand up for ourselves and demand our rights as patients and, and get the services that we need. And in many contexts, that's true. 
But there's also a reasonable amount of empirical evidence that we do sometimes want things that aren't good for us. Um, and that it's difficult to understand the complexity and uncertainty of medicine. Um, and that there's forces in the culture that are trying to encourage us to want things that are in their best interests because we'll pay for them rather than in our best interests as health consumers. Um, there's been a lot of messages in the culture and from medicine and from public health encouraging us to get more and more tests in the last 40 years. So it's not surprising that a good proportion of us actually expect to be tested. You know, that, that's been a fairly consistent message. So I think what's important for us to think about is that expectations come from somewhere. Now, if we have expectations that possibly are leading us to experience more harm than benefit, um, those expectations have come from somewhere and we have to look at the system, we have to look at the culture, we have to look at the communication that we're exposed to um, and we have to work out how we can alter those forces so that our expectations are more aligned with what's going to benefit us instead of harm us. Jenny, can I just comment yeah. on something that Stacey said there? This, this idea that um, we may want something that's not good for us. Because I think it's very difficult. So I work with um, um, hematological cancers, with leukaemia and lymphoma and so forth. I think it's very, very difficult for somebody to know that something is bad for them, number one. But it's also really difficult as a health professional to say to somebody, no, actually, that test is really bad for you. Or this, this test that, that may, may help you determine if you have a cancer or don't have a cancer, you shouldn't have that test. I'd say that, that's a really difficult new conversation, I think. And, and I think what's really important about that is that it reveals that this problem of overdiagnosis that we're all working on together, is a, it's a problem with the system. So it's really easy to start pointing fingers and looking to blame individuals. You know, patients want too much or clinicians aren't careful enough. Or, but actually it's a problem with a reorientation of the system away from beneficial care and towards harmful care. So everyone's implicated, everyone can do something to change it. But it's also bigger than any of us, so we actually all have a contribution to make. So Chris, you're working in an area where this is very relevant and where the genetic testing is exponentially increasing. How do you decide when a genetic test is worthwhile or not? Yeah, so, you know, most of heart disease that we know about is lifestyle related, so high blood pressure, cholesterol, smoking being overweight, but there are some heart diseases which are caused directly by a fault in a gene that you're born with. And these are often younger people with heart disease. And what's been exciting is that we've been able to identify genes which cause disease and that helps us in diagnosis and management. The problem is that uh, technology has far outstripped our knowledge. So I can now take Jenny's blood sample and look at all 22,000 of her genes in a few weeks. The problem is I don't know what all those 22,000 genes do. In fact, I don't even know what a quarter of them do. So we're ending up in a situation where my patients who have heart disease, who should only be tested for a handful of genes, are actually being tested for 10, 20, 50, 100 genes, and are being found to carry faults in genes that we have no idea what it actually leads to. They may never develop disease in the rest of their life, but they carry a gene that will provide them with a lot of worry lifelong and real uncertainty about what that result actually means. So there's a line there, which I don't know where that line is, where genetic testing is very helpful, but once you cross that line, and we're crossing it in many of the newer tests these days, when it's actually more harmful than beneficial. So I think you know, what underpins everything we're talking about today is this notion that many things are very beneficial, 
but there are also harms and, and balancing that in the cardiology space is very important. Okay, I think we might go to the um, audience now. So Meredith has got a roving mic. Um, just the comment that you made, and I'm not, not sure of uh, your name. Um, no, the gentleman. Chris? Yes, Chris. Um, does that mean that, um, that if your relative or a member of your family uh, has a, an illness or a disease from a genetic uh, situation, um, should the children be tested for that? Or is it um, not necessary or not essential? Yeah, so if you're speaking specifically about heart disease, the answer is yes. If there's a genetic heart condition in the family, you do do clinical testing of family members to look for signs of disease. That's very different. That's a very targeted approach where you're looking for a particular disease in a relative who might have a 50-50 chance of having the same condition. So the answer is yes, but the genetic test is a different story because the genetics test is not as specific in that situation. So we, you know, if you look, start looking for genes, you might end up finding what we call incidental findings, where it's a gene change, but doesn't actually relate to the disease in the family, but creates a whole lot of problems for the individual. And so we want to avoid that. So clinically, we can look at the family, do an ECG or an ultrasound, uh, or an ECG monitor, as you can hear outside. That's yes. one of my patients we're monitoring at the moment. Um, but the genetic test is the problem because we, we don't know enough about all the genes. We know about some of the genes and it's very useful when we use those genes. So there's benefits, but then we're testing too many genes and we're causing all sorts of harm. Could, could I just follow up on that? It's, it's, um, so, so this is in relation to genetics and, and blood cancers. Because there's two issues. One is the volume of genes. There's, there's an enormous volume of genes that, that we can test for that we don't necessarily understand. But it's not just the individual genes. Also, those genes can work in combinations in different ways. So, so there's myriad possibilities. So one's a volume problem. But the second is that rarely do the genetic tests give you a definitive a binary answer. Right? You're going to get this disease or you're not going to get it. You, are, you have a... 100% chance of developing you know, diabetes or heart disease or cancer or leukaemia or what have you, or zero. Um, you are or you are not going to relapse. You are or are not going to develop leukaemia in the future. They give you probabilities. And that's extraordinarily stressful to say to somebody, because there's few words that are scarier than cancer, but leukaemia is up there as, as, as one of the sort of scary words. So to say to somebody, look, you know, you may or may not have leukaemia, but don't worry about it. Don't, don't be too stressed about that. Right? Or you may or may not develop leukaemia, and we don't have a good way of determining it, but just go and, you know, don't be too distressed about that. Right? So, so because they don't give you clear answers, they give you probabilities, the probabilities may be changed in different settings, and there's this enormous volume. It's, it's enormously difficult. It's a land of uncertainty that, that we're, you know, they're not so used to. Thank you very much. Um, some of the justification that's um, given for genetic testing in particular is that um, people will make better decisions uh, in terms of their, their risk. You know, they, they, they convert this when you're 
writing grant applications, you say, well, this is going to benefit because people, if they know their risk, they will change their lifestyle, and that's a justification. And I think Theresa Marceau, who you may know from the University of Oxford, has shown that even given risks, which are things like a... Um, you know, people who have uh, a genetic predisposition to melanoma don't change their habits. And that stunned me. I was quite amazed about that and that body of work. So is that sort of uh, a universal phenomenon? What do you know about... I mean, you already mentioned the problem of um, the fact that they're less precise. I mean, genetic testing is so imprecise it would be almost immoral to give someone the information, I think, what you're suggesting... But given that there may be some genetic testing which are quite rigorous, um, what do people do when they have this information? Do they change their behaviour? Do they try and reduce their risk? Her data would suggest that they don't. Yeah, I, I'll comment on that briefly and then I'll pass over to Chris. So, um, obviously there's a lot more work that needs to be done on this topic and the field is changing endlessly. But for the work I'm aware of, absolutely you're correct. When people are given their genetic test information, whether it's melanoma or for elevated risk of lung cancer, for instance, it doesn't change their behaviour. It doesn't reduce their risk-taking behaviour. So we can't see any benefit in that way. There may be other changes that they make that may be beneficial that haven't yet been captured, but certainly in that, in that chief benefit which people kind of claimed, we haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I think in cardiology, I think there are some specific examples where the genetic risk actually has the potential to impact on how you treat the patient and their prognosis as well. And they're very clear, and when explained to the patient, I think a lot of patients do take that on board. For example, there are some genetic changes in heart disease where you should avoid very high-level exercise or sports because it can lead to problems. But in the majority, we don't actually know what the gene changes actually mean, and they're very hard to relate them to risk. And so we're in, a, we're in a bind there. And so the same thing I said earlier, there are some genes where we know a lot about where we can use that information very usefully in the clinic, and I, I, I find that a, a great advance of medicine in the last 10 years. But there are now companies offering whole genomes, 22,000 gene testing, when we don't know anything about them. There's a study in the UK that's doing whole genomes, 22,000 genes, on newborn babies to see how the genetic information might impact on their lives. I mean, I find that, it might be other comments, but ethically and morally, I find that a very difficult study to, um, to agree with um, as a clinician. I'd love, I'd love to see a baby making conscious decisions about its life. Yes. <laughs> That'd be brilliant. I'd love to do that piece of research. The, um, could I just go to the word you used, which was claim? Um, because I think that that's really a key issue here, isn't it? Because, you know, there's, there's a series of steps. There's, there's knowing what a genetic mutation means, and we can, we can substitute blood test or we can substitute imaging test or what have you. So there's knowing what it means, and then, then there's being able to do something about it, so to act on that, that uh, abnormality or, or that, that variance. And then there's acting on that variance in a way that actually makes a difference to the person's life. So there's at least three steps there. And we have bits of the first one, very few of the, the second bits. You know, the, the, the knowing what to do about it. And then the third bit, which is the most important one, which is that it makes a difference, a positive difference in people's lives. So I think there's, there's a massive difference between the claim that's made to justify testing and then everything that flows from it. 
So Meredith, there's a question down here, but as you're coming down to um, give the microphone, I just want to sort of go on from that point, away from genetic testing, but to Iona, because this isn't just a problem about genetic testing. It also happens when you get X-ray reports and MRI reports and all sorts of things that come back with the patient. So I just want to ask you how you deal with that and what you think we can actually do with patients to, to resolve these problems. It's, it seems to me to do, it is so much to do with fear. Everybody's afraid. Patients are afraid. Humans are afraid. People have always been afraid of the future, about what might happen to them. And then we, you know, we are living longer than ever before in human history. We are healthier than ever before in human history. And yet we spend our, our time obsessing about our health. It seems a little bit of a pity. Uh, really, um, and it's like it reminds me of Dr. Faustus. You know, this people have always wanted to know the future. This is just another human manifestation of wanting to know the future, and knowing the future has always been incredibly painful. Dr. Faustus didn't actually enjoy knowing what his future destiny was going to be. And I suspect it's really rather wonderful that none of us knows what will happen to us tomorrow. Um, and I think that we need to defend that ignorance about what will happen to us tomorrow because that gives us the freedom to live our lives. Um, and so a roundabout answer to your question, but I think one of the, the great things that a, a, a GP can do for a patient is to find out what their priorities are in a way and, and spend more time listening and less time testing in order to make a, a more sensible diagnosis about what could help in the limited future. We, you know, we're all going to die of something, but who wants to know when and with what? I certainly don't. Hey, um, Wendy. Yeah, thanks, Iona. That touched a little bit on the answer to the question that I haven't asked yet. Um, but it seems from what people have said, I mean, overdiagnosis is a product of what we might think of as a perfect storm. We've got increased diagnostic testing, increased sensitivity, widened disease definitions, increased fear and uncertainty, um, both in the patients and in the doctors of missing things. So we've got this kind of perfect storm. And you've talked about what GPs and patients might want to do. But I'd be interested in what everyone on the panel would have to say, really, if, if they had a kind of a, a blue skies wish, what's the one thing that you think you could change that would help to kind of get us out of the perfect storm? May we only have one? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to start, Stacey? Oh, we can all contribute something, perhaps. Um, I think... One of the problems, which is an intractable problem, partly because when it's done, it's done with the very best of intentions, um, is advocacy around particular diseases, encouraging people to think of themselves as being at risk of those diseases and to test themselves for those diseases. And, and that communication is always, I'm sure, done with the very best of intent and often actually from deep personal experience of that disease and how horrible it can be. So it's a very difficult thing to intervene insensitively, I think. Um, but when you add up all of those individual disease campaigns, you create a barrage of encouragement um, to be diagnosed with things or to continuously monitor oneself just in case one needs to be diagnosed with things. Um, so I, th I think a great deal of good could be done thinking less about 
um, encouraging people to see whether they might have a particular disease and, and thinking more about what it might mean to experience well-being um, as a human in a much more multi-dimensional and less disease-focused way. <laughs> no, I think, I think in the field of genetic testing, I think we have to go back to the phenotype, to the patient, because, we're, because we can test the gene doesn't mean we should test the gene. And really, clinical medicine comes down to the patient and what the patient has and defining the disease of the patient. And then genetic testing can be very helpful, but has to follow on from that. The problem in the genetic testing world is that Companies, I can only speak about the cardiac genetics companies, they feel fantastic when they say we're going to test 100 genes. And then the next company says I'm going to test 200 genes and 300 genes. And so they all compete thinking that it's a better test. But of course in most patients we only need to test a handful of genes, maybe less than five, related to the patient's disease. So I think we have to, it's very hard, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a fast train going full speed and steam ahead. But we need to try and put the brakes on and just look back and think, well, maybe we should go back to testing the main genes and then go from there. So that's a, I mean, that's not an easy thing to do in the commercial world. But I think in the end, I mean, in the end, where this whole thing is about trying to optimise and improve the health of our patients. And if it's not doing that, then we're doing the wrong thing. Kirsten? Um, so I think what I would want to do is to ensure that all clinicians give patients information about the harms of tests and treatments in a clear, evidence-based way, in a way we know that they would understand. And, and in contrast to maybe the things that Stacey and Chris were saying, that shouldn't be too hard. Um, we've known for at least 10 years how to communicate risk in a way that supports understanding rather than makes things confusing, yet we still see that data that Jenny put up about misperceptions about breast cancer, that breast cancer screening benefits and harms. We should be able to do that. Um, it does require a system change because it requires doctors to have that information to hand, but they also need be, to be prepared to give it. And we actually know that doctors themselves often don't know um, the harm. So that's, that's what I would do. And it, it should be possible. Ah, fourth. Excellent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, um, if the, maybe one thing is to, to um, try and encourage um, cultural change so that there can be critical um, uh, discussions about what, uh, what evidence is and where it comes from and what it means, uh, about what illness is and diagnosis is and, and what it means, about what diseases are. So, and that, that requires time because these are really difficult conversations to have, I think. Um, and it requires some degree of sort of sensitive scepticism uh, on everybody's part, I think. So some type of cultural change within society generally, within the healthcare system to allow those kind of conversations to happen. And Iona. Oh, well, I've got two slogans. Um, one is, um, let's leave the well alone. Um, I would like to see the whole of healthcare reorientate itself towards people who are suffering in the here and now and leave behind our godlike aspirations to stop anybody getting anything at any time by having something done to them now when they should just actually be enjoying their lives. My other slogan is follow the money. 
and the, the, the medical industrial complex, the devices manufacturers and pharmaceutical manufacturers have a very great financial interest and imperative in us taking more and more tablets every year <coughs> and in having more and more tests every year. And that is a very, very powerful hidden vested interest behind all of this that really needs our suspicion and our attention. There are some, when you are ill, contemporary medicine is a fantastic force for, for, for good. But when you are not ill and when you're just dealing with probabilities and risks, then we can cause all sorts of havoc and we are not to be trusted. Yes, here. Oh, sorry. No, sorry, you were first, yes. yes. In the area of prostate cancer, there are some clever tests that will inevitably produce terror in the mind of the males hearing that they've got prostate cancer. But there's some truly remarkable work done in Chicago and Cleveland nearly 20 years ago that shows that prostate cancer is something that is so slow-growing that at 23, the men tested by this group, 20% of them had prostate cancer. And that progressively uh, went up until uh, at 50, there were 50%, at 60, 60%, and at 80, it was 83%. Why isn't that information available more widely? Because it reveals to men that what, what they've been told is cancer is so slow growing that they'll probably die with it, not of it. Okay, Kirsten. Yes, absolutely, and, and very few men still know that information, as you said, and why don't they know? Um, because I think of the imperatives that have been discussed around the table um, that now, encourage, um, encourage testing and um, offer financial incentives to increase that um, or to promote that sort of anxiety and desire to test and treat. Um, I mean, that is the kind of information that I think needs to be communicated and communicated clearly. And I think it also speaks to this issue that was raised about how we, how we label disease and what and how we talk about diagnosis. So in prostate, early stage prostate cancer, do we really need to call it a cancer? Could we call it something else? Could we call it abnormal cells or lesions? And we've been doing some work in the area of both of breast cancer, ductal carcinoma in situ, which is a very early stage non-invasive breast cancer, and in thyroid cancer, looking at these very early stage cancers. And what we found in studies that we've done when you use alternative terms, so you describe um, uh, the diagnosis as abnormal cells or a lesion, then people are less anxious um, and have less desire for invasive treatment. Um, and I think we need to think very carefully about the labels we give to diseases, but we also absolutely we need to promote awareness of inconsequential disease of overdiagnosis, and really we're only at the very beginning of doing that with the public. The public is still enormously unaware 
of the problem and, and that really needs to change and we hope that's part of what we can do in this in this grant and the work that we're going to be doing. Okay. There's a question here, Adam. There's a question there. Oh, sorry, oh, thank Ms. Vance got a microphone. Uh, thanks, Ayanna, and, yeah. and uh, colleagues. Um, look, I'm in general practice on the Central Coast, which is about an hour, an hour and a half uh, north of here. And it takes about the same time to travel from there to here as it does from somebody to, to drive from, say, public transport from Soweto to Joburg. And so that, um, like the citizens of, of uh, Soweto, um, the tradies, the nurses, um, the policemen... Uh, a, a lot of service people who provide services to Sydney spend four to five hours a day sometimes in stressful conditions. They're sitting on their bums. They're working way through, through stressful situations. We know that has adverse impact on their health from a whole variety of situations. And we also know that um, if we look at where we've come the last 50 years, you know, 50 years ago when we first started on our journey, um, medicine was primarily general practice-based. The, the specialties were emerging. Um, but these days, um, the little general practice, like the local greengrocer, is gone. We've got corporates mushrooming, mushrooming all over the place. We talked about the culture of medicine, the structure of medicine. Um, medicine's a very pyramid structure like our society. Uh, at the top, you've got wealthy specialists. At the bottom, you've got your GPs uh, or wherever. And, um, and so that... Uh, and you've also looked at the, the whole issue around public-private partnerships, which I think has really adversely affected, um, I think, medical outcomes and the direction of medical research. So the whole thrust of our research is around uh, silos of care controlled by specialists looking at ever-increasing sophisticated technology and tests uh, to really basically uh, control that little segment of the market. That's the way it really works. Uh, we ignored lifestyle, we mentioned lifestyle, but then we jumped to the gene because that's our socialisation. But we know that from cancer to diabetes to heart failure, a lot of these illnesses are reversible, yes, reversible even in older age and preventable um, with lifestyle change. And yet we really don't really... I don't think we've had any head-to-head -head research, for instance, comparing a statin versus vigorous lifestyle change. It just doesn't exist. There's no money in it. Okay. So I, I believe, know. sorry, I'm, I'm going oh, on a bit, but I believe that our culture has become seduced by the pharmaceutical industry. We've lost track of our communities. We're divorced from our communities in many ways. And we really need to refocus on communities through primary health care. In general practice, the technology is to order a test and deliver a drug. But we have no capacity at the front level to do any local epidemiological research, which general practice would really benefit from. Comments, please. So, Go ahead. Right. Uh, two things. Um, one is that I think general practice needs to be orientated to individual patients. It's the old saying that it's more important to know the patient who has the disease than to know the disease the patient has remains very true. But we have, um, both in your country and in mine, undermined the potential for continuity of care between uh, uh, doctors and patients. So I think the, the individual doctor-patient relationship is extremely important as the basis of healthcare. On the other hand, I think that public health has been seduced into thinking it can improve the health of the population by coercing individuals into lifestyle change. Whereas 
we should be doing a lot more health protection at the level of society, so having a transport policy that makes it much easier for people to take exercise, um, you know, having cycle routes that are genuinely usable, um, all the sorts of things that you can do at a societal level to improve. We know that putting cigarettes into plain packaging, or as you do, covering them with horrible pictures that must terrify the children of the people who continue to smoke, <laughs> but that's another issue. But that does much, much more good than, than nagging our patients on an individual basis about their smoking, because there is nobody on this planet left who doesn't know that smoking is bad for them. <laughs> and politicians seem to think that they need to be told at every occasion by their health worker that it's bad for them. Actually, I think they know. There's a question over here. Oh, hi. Um, I'd just like to ask about um, the other side of the picture, about disincentivising testing, like whether it's from a government or regulatory bodies or from the clinical colleges. Is there a role from those different um, areas to sort of reduce the testing? Oh, I think I could ask almost anyone on the panel to answer that question. Um, who would like to... Uh, maybe... Kirsten, I might ask you first because... You know yeah. what, I might actually call on Adam who's holding the microphone. <laughs> yes! Back, because he is the policy expert. Adam, do you mind? You, you have a, you're a fountain you're of knowledge. You're our disinvestment expert. Um, sure. And I work with Natasha, so I could just tell her tomorrow the answer to the question. <laughs> the rest of the room might have <laughs> sure. your, your perspective because you know a lot about this topic. <clears throat> Yes, so uh, in terms of um, thinking about the leverage points where we might be able to impact this, um, there's really dozens of them. But even sometimes we, uh, you know, oh, so I'm a member of the MBS Review Task Force, I should point that out as well. So we think about what are the leverage points that can be introduced through um, something like the Medicare system in Australia. Sometimes it's very simple. Sometimes it's just about putting in more specific descriptor items around who are appropriate candidates for a certain test and who are inappropriate candidates for a certain test. So that might be clinical characteristics or patient characteristics, which not only um, educate the doctor who might be ordering the test, but it also becomes a condition of when it's funded. So as um, Professor Samsarian has pointed out, for some of these genetic tests, they're actually quite appropriate but for a much smaller group of patients or a much smaller group of, uh, of genes that might be tested. So you can specify that um, within a funding rule, perhaps, or you could put a number of limits on how many tests are allowed in a certain year or, or so on. So um, there is much more work that can be done in that area, and Medicare, when it was established, didn't think this far ahead and didn't get ahead of this problem. So we've got a lot of um, backtracking to do, but um, that's, again, part of what this grant is about. So for those of you in the audience who don't know Adam, Professor Adam Elshog, who's another chief investigator on the grant. Okay, uh, there's a question here. Thank you for an excellent panel. Uh, I'm a researcher in health and medical law at the University of Newcastle. So I really enjoyed the cartoon about you've got the right to remain anxious. But I'm working on a project investigating how law sometimes can be a driver of excessive provision of care. So there's discussion about what's called defensive medical practice, where clinicians order tests or treatments or refer patients because they're more concerned about risking or reducing their risk of legal liability than they are in, in really advancing the patient's diagnosis or treatment. So I'm wondering if you have comments about that phenomenon of defensive practice 
And then I'm also interested in how law can perhaps promote cultural change among, among clinicians and that clinician-patient relationship. And the law assumes that that doctor-patient relationship rests on a foundation of informed consent. So I'd be interested in hearing a bit more about how those conversations can happen to inform patients so they really understand the risks of things like overdiagnosis. Okay, I'm going to start with Iona and then ask Kirsten to comment as well. Uh, this, uh, this is a very important question. Um, I'll come to my personal experience in a minute, but I, I see young doctors terrified by this prospect and terrified by this prospect into, into following guidelines when they know in their hearts that they're not appropriate. I remember um, teaching a group of uh, young GP trainees in London about uh, the sort of care of older people I wanted when, as I was getting older. And saying that, you know, you cannot follow all the single disease. Once I've got, you know, most... It's, it's great. As you get older, you start collecting diseases. You know, this is what happens. But um, you can't treat them all according to the single disease guidelines or you'd be taking 50 tablets a day. Um, so you need people who are prepared to tailor the treatment round the individual patient and what they still want from life. And no fewer than three or four of the young doctors out of a group of 15 said they couldn't possibly not follow the guidelines because they were afraid of being in the newspapers by being sued. Now that is a tragic situation because I don't want a doctor who's going to do something to me to protect themselves. But this is where we come back to continuity of care because you can only make those sorts of decisions and have genuine, serious conversations that that involve consent and involve information within the context of trusting relationship. And so um, it, it's very, very important for all of us to try and ensure healthcare systems that support continuity of care. But I'd like to ask you a question back because I, um, I was once at a lecture by an American um, who was an expert in medical lit litigation. And you know, they lead the world in medical litigation, so he should know. But he said that people shouldn't worry because most people who sue their doctors have decided to sue them before anything goes wrong because they've decided that that doctor is an arrogant bastard who doesn't listen to them and if they get a chance, they're going to take him out. And that that decision precedes is that. Do you know anything about that? It makes sense to me. Well, I am aware of a, a growing body of literature that attempts to describe a claim-prone physician, and there are certain specialties where, particularly surgical specialties, where doctors are much more at risk of being sued or obstetrics, of course. Uh, but also doctors who are perceived as being arrogant and who don't talk to the patients that they are the ones who are also more likely to have a complaint or, or lawsuit lodged against them. So that would give some tentative support. And I have undoubtedly been, for, you know, every doctor makes mistakes, but I have been forgiven by, my, by various of my patients for, for errors more or less grave, mostly less grave, I'm thankful to say, because they know that over the years I've been trying. 
I've been trying to do my best by them, and they recognise that, and they, you know, they're they're prepared to think of me as a human being, not as an automaton. Kirsten, I think it might be good if you um, answer that as yes, well. Yes, um, there was an interesting interesting paper written by an American professor at the University of, uh, I think, California, and he was writing about fear. Um, and he reported a survey of, I think, about 800 US clinicians, and I think over 70% of them said they practiced defensively. So they said they'd either ordered a test or image when they knew it was unnecessary, they prescribed drugs when they knew they probably wouldn't work. Um, and so it, it is, it's a, it's a huge problem. But interestingly, obviously, America is, is different to many countries in the world. It has some of the highest rates of litigation, right? But the same defensive practice does happen in other countries where the, um, where the penalties or the legal system exactly. isn't, isn't so severe um, to doctors. So, for instance, in New Zealand, where there's a, I think it's called no claims, I can't remember, um, no fault. No fault. No fault, yeah, that's right. Um, there's still defensive medicine exists there. So it's, it's not the only answer. And obviously, if, if um, you are sued, it's public shaming. Um, so, again, it kind of also comes back to the culture of medicine. Yeah. So both Stacey and Ian, I think Stacey first and then Ian. Yeah, Stacey? Maybe to flesh out those quantitative empirical findings, um, going back to Kristen's study, um, when she was trying to explain by talking with GPs um, why they did or did not do PSA tests, um, that's a test that's used to detect the risk of developing prostate cancer, um, the fear of litigation did come up, and interestingly, it came up differently depending on the kind of practice that the GP customarily engaged in. So um, GPs that were inclined to test because they were worried about not picking up a cancer um, were likely to talk about the risk of litigation as part of a very complex explanation. It was only a very small part of the explanation, but it was there. Whereas GPs who grit their teeth and tried to resist testing because they'd read the evidence that showed that it was more likely to do harm than good, were more likely to talk about litigation um, along the lines of, I think it's consistent with accepted standards of practice that I shouldn't test, so I think I'm probably safer if I don't test. So I think litigation can potentially be used, depending on what you've concluded is correct practice, the, the fear of litigation can be used in a different kind of way as a justificatory technique. And the way that people perceive their legal risk isn't necessarily always actually the legal risk that they, they, uh, they may be at threat of, and Ian may want to talk yeah, to that. Yeah, no, that, that's what I was going to, to say, is that because I, I would defend the law, is that the, the problem is not so much the law, it's, it's fear of the law, and it's a deep misunderstanding of it. And maybe two things. One is a misunderstanding of the risk of litigation, which in this country is incredibly low and way lower than the number of patients that we kill. And, um, you know, through, through negligence or through hospital-acquired illnesses or what have you, you know, there's a lot of patients that are harmed and very few times does it actually sort of become an issue of litigation. But the other thing is, is a misunderstanding of the law. And the, the best example is, is consent law. So, so there isn't any law in this country that says that you have to tell patients about every possible risk. You just have to tell patients about risks that are material. So risks that are significant or material to them in their situation, in their specific situation. 
But what doctors frequently understand the law as saying is demanding that you tell them everything. So you generate massive consent forms and we have the terror of what we should and shouldn't tell people. But the, but the law doesn't require those things. It actually gives lots of flexibility for discussions and very honest discussions with people about the sorts of things that Stacey's talking about, including you know, what guidelines may or may not say and what we should do in this situation. So it's not so much the law, it's how we perceive it and how we use it. Okay, we've got time for one more question. Um, I'm not sure how to phrase this question, so just bear with me. I'm a little confused between the guidelines, the limitations and how the law interacts with those. And I'm coming from a, a background of breast cancer. So if you have um, someone who's been diagnosed with breast cancer, had the genetic testing, you know, the whole family comes in, the testing scenario keeps, you know, evolving, the barrage that you spoke about. How does the law... Um, how does the law come into play when you say, right, you really don't need to do that testing for those siblings or those that extended family? And Do you know what I'm trying to say here? So it, it's a double fault. And then you've got women who have done the testing and supposedly done the guidelines and six months later they've been diagnosed with cancer. And it's like, well, hang on a minute, you just showed me a slide that says I can pick up 0 0.02 or whatever it was. Um, you know, it's a different generation. Telling me it's in situ, all I'm going to do is work out what in situ is. It's a different generation. My parents perhaps may never have looked it up, but I know what in situ is. So I guess I'm just trying to understand better the mechanism. This is, this is, I think you absolutely put your finger on the difficulty of predicting the future. And this is the one of the problems about screening, because if you get a negative test on screening, you can be falsely reassured and, and then, then actually there is perhaps some evidence that you don't pay enough attention to changes that might be going on in your body because you just had a test that said you were all right. And I've certainly had patients who have then neglected very small lumps, which are, of course, more significant than anything you could possibly find on a test, um, which should therefore never be done. Um, I'd like to challenge you on you know what in situ is. I'm not sure I know what in situ is. And the problem with in situ is we don't know what it's going to do in the future. Okay, okay, because I, it's, it, is this, it is this huge problem about not knowing what will happen. And the smaller the, the abnormality on a test, the less, be it a, an image or a genetic test or, a, or a, any other sort of blood test, the less we know about how, how strong its prediction for the future. So we're, so we're throwing shadows over people's lives, many of which should not be there. Okay, I think, sorry, we're just getting onto the time when we need to actually go to the formal launch of the centre. So, 
So thank you to the panel for all of those um, answers to those questions. So, ladies and gentlemen, let me also just quickly uh, express our appreciation to Jenny for her opening remarks and for leading that panel. Thanks, Jenny, very much. So it's my great pleasure now, as we just come to the conclusion of tonight's ceremony, to officially uh, launch the center. It's been a wonderful uh, discussion. As I said at the beginning, it really does manifest two of the core uh, values that the university is really seeking to, uh, I guess, embody in its its, its research and teaching as we think about the next five to six years. That is a focus on excellence. Here we have a center that's been uh, awarded uh, on the basis of the excellence of its research by the NHMRC. And then secondly, the willingness to tackle in, a, in creative, original, and I think courageous ways fundamental problems in our culture and in our society. And, and the discussion we've just had about overdiagnosis and, and testing and the relationship between uh, the extraordinary advances of medical science and the impact that can have on not just our legal and regulatory system, but the, the well-being and individual lives of, of patients, I think has been uh, a great uh, example of that. So I'm just delighted to have been able to uh, be part of this uh, tonight. It, it is always fascinating to see the intersection between science, culture, and the law. We always have to understand these problems in that wider context. They're never the domain of a single uh, area of research, and that's something that at Sydney we're very keen to ensure we promote in our, in our research culture. So the, the, I'm delighted to, to, to launch the Centre and the Wiser Healthcare um, Network. It's a really exciting venture. There is, uh, as is required now, a really cool website, which everyone can uh, go visit. It is indeed a very cool website. So I encourage people tonight to uh, go back and, and click through it and tweet it and Facebook it and um, Snapchat it uh, with delight. Um, and uh, it's something that I think everyone tonight will, will realize is a, is, a, is a discussion and conversation we need to have uh, more of. So let me also thank, uh, again, Jenny for her opening remarks and all the panelists, and now hand back to... Um... Thank you, Duncan, and again, thank you for being here tonight and launching our new collaboration, Wiser Healthcare. Um, before I draw the evening to a, clo um, to a close, I'd like to announce some more good news on the funding front, which... Um, now I'm in a rare position um, to announce. We have a, a second major grant from the government, from the National Health and Medical Research Council, on this topic. That's a program grant that will commence in 2017. Um, that will involve the chief investigators listed here. So that's Paul Glazio from Bond University, Rochelle Bookbinder from Monash, Chris Marr, who's from the University of Sydney, and also me, and this long list of associate investigators who are all part of this bigger, wider, um, wiser healthcare research collaboration. So we're really excited. We're going to be extending our work, doing more work in cancer, more work in cardiovascular disease, and we're extending work into the area of musculoskeletal disease, looking at over-imaging and, and over-testing and surgery for back, lower back pain, that kind of area. So we are really excited, and you can see we've also got a long list of international um, associate investigators, which shows how important people um, around the world and or how seriously they are taking this problem. So that starts in 2017, so watch this space. And just to finish, we really hope you've enjoyed this evening. 
We hope we have inspired you to think a bit differently about testing and treatment and to understand our passion about research in this area and the significance of too much medicine. Um, I'd want to put up a quote, um, which is uh, a very nice one from Atul Gawande, who you may well have heard of. He's a surgeon and a prolific author, and he often writes in The New Yorker. And here he is an uh, endocrine surgeon, so he treats patients with thyroid cancer. And you heard earlier about the rapid rise in these very small thyroid cancers. And here he says he had a patient with a very, very, very small uh, micropapillary thyroid cancer. And he'd actually advised her not to have surgery, but she, she wanted it. She was too anxious. And he says here he performed the surgery... There was a little bit of hiccup in the surgery, but she was okay. Um, and he says here that the medical system has done what it so often does, perform tests unnecessarily to reveal problems that aren't quite problems to then be fixed unnecessarily at great expense and no little risk. Meanwhile, we avoid taking adequate care of the biggest problems that people face. And an, an entire healthcare system has been devoted to this game. So I think this really sums up um, the challenge that we face and that we are looking forward to um, researching and tackling and raising the profile of this problem over the next five and six years with this, these grants. So before I finish, we have some refreshments out in the foyer um, and we would be really delighted if you would join us for a drink and a small bite to eat um, to celebrate the beginning of this exciting collaboration. Um, to close, I'd like to give final thanks to all the panel members um, and Iona Heath, who has travelled the furthest all the way to the UK. Thank you very much, Iona, for coming and has inspired many of us on this topic for a long time. So thank you, Iona. And, um, and just to finish, thanks to you, the audience. Thanks for your fascinating questions. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being interested in, and um, participating in this evening's event. Thank you. And um, look forward to discussing more over a drink.